we are in Malachi. So I hope you'll find your way there. If you don't know where Malachi is, or if you thought it was called Malachi, it's Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. If you're using the hardback Bibles, it's page 801. And that's where we're going to be spending our time for the next four weeks. And I promise, if you hang on, it will get Christmassy. And it'll be worth it when we get there. But it'll take a minute or a week. Between now and Christmas, we are going to do a quick four-week survey of this final book. We're going to use our Advent season. And we're going to use Malachi to help us prepare for our celebration of the birth of Christ. And I'll tell you, Malachi probably should be preached over eight weeks, maybe ten but we're going to just kind of get our, get our feet wet with it. We're going to fly through it in four weeks with the hope of seeing how it points us towards the coming of Christ. Before we jump in, let me tell you a little bit about this book because most of you probably aren't overly familiar with it. We've already established it is the last book of the Old Testament, and it's there for a reason. It's generally believed that Malachi was the final prophet to speak for God before the birth of Christ. Now, Malachi lived about 450 B.C. And so you recognize that's not just right before Christ. It's over 400 years before Christ is born. And what we know is that there was this time, we refer to it as the time of silence. There was these 400 years from the last prophet, Malachi, to the birth of Christ when God did not speak through any prophets and there was new, no new word for his people. Malachi was the last one, and his name actually means my messenger. Some have wondered if it's a title and not a name. I'm just going to assume it's a name. Often in the Bible, we have names that tell us what someone does. I'm going to refer to the writer of the book as Malachi, but it means my messenger. He was God's final, final messenger to his people before the time of silence, and before he would send his son to be born in Bethlehem. And here's what you should know as we get started. The message that Malachi delivers is a hard message. It's a difficult message because God is speaking to a people who are not joyfully waiting, but a people who are complacent and disobedient. So the message that God is communicating to them through Malachi, in large part, is a message of correction. It's a call to repentance. So we go through the book. Here's what we're going to hear. We're going to hear God calling them out for their unfaithfulness. And we're going to hit some very specific examples of the way they've been unfaithful. For example, they're being sloppy and careless in their worship. We're going to see that next week in chapter 1. They're complacent in the way they approach God. They're also being disobedient in the way they handle marriage. We're going to see that in chapter 2. They're being selfish and stingy with their offerings. That's in verse chapter 3. God's going down the list, pointing out all the ways that his people have been unfaithful. Reminding them of coming judgment. Calling them to repentance and with that said, here's the question that Stephen posed for us. Why are we spending Advent in Malachi? 
Why would we spend the Christmas season considering a book which is in large part a correction? There's a couple of reasons why. The first reason is that we have a lot in common with these folks. Here's what I mean. These are our people that have been chosen by God, who have received the promises of God, who have the promise of a coming Messiah. There are people in waiting. And yet, as they wait, they become complacent. What we're going to see is they begin to doubt the love of God. And perhaps they would argue for good reason. This is a generation who just came out of exile in Babylon. They've returned from a hard time, but they're still living under foreign rule. There's still a lot of the people of God who are dispersed and displaced. Even for those who are back in Jerusalem, things aren't the way they were, and they feel forgotten. They have the promises of God, but they also have doubts about his faithfulness. And what we see is their doubts turn to complacency, which turns to disobedience. And I'm not necessarily saying that's happened to you. But I want to suggest we're in a position where that's possible. Because we too are the people of God, who have the promises of God, and yet we may find ourselves in situations of our life where we feel forgotten by God, and we may be inclined to let that feeling of forget, for being forgotten to turn to doubt, to turn to complacency, to turn to disobedience. And so I'm hoping this book will be a reminder for us. Christ has come. Christ is coming. Let's be faithful as we wait. That's the first reason. Second, I think we can be forgetful of the hope of his coming. And while most of this book is a correction, what we're going to see throughout are these reminders that God is faithful. Think about this. God is going to a people and pointing out their sin and calling them to repentance. What is that if not a faithful God? And as he reminds them of their sin, he's also reminding them that there is more to come. We have the implicit reminders of his faithfulness, but we also have really explicit things. In fact, the, what we're going to see this morning is the book opens, this book of judgment opens with a reminder of the love of God. And then it ends, our Christmas passages in the last three verses, where we're told there's one coming. There's one coming who will save his people. It's a book of a lot of correction, but it's also a book that begins and ends with assurances of God's commitment to his people. And friends, as we go towards Christmas, may Christmas be a reminder to us that God keeps his word. I want to work hard over the next few weeks, not to read Christmas into Malachi, but to show you that God is faithful and he has made promises. And that's what I kind of gave as a title to our, our time in Malachi. God's faithfulness to an unfaithful people. And if that's not the story of Christmas, then what is? 
God has come to those who did not deserve him. He came to save us. And so I think this is a good place for us to spend our preparation for Christmas. With that said, it's a short book, but four weeks is a short period of time. And today we're only going to look at five verses, which means we're going to have some catching up. There's going to be a couple weeks where we're going to cover some big sections. But my hope is that God will use this time in this book to show us new things about him and about our need for him. So Malachi chapter 1. Hopefully I've stalled long enough for you to find it. I'm going to read the first five verses. Hear the word of God. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Now, I told you, this is a difficult book. Malachi is bringing a hard message, which is something that's actually evident in the very first verse, if we know what we're looking at. Look at verse 1 again. He says, the oracle of the word of the Lord by Malachi. That word, oracle, it's a word we see introducing a few sections of Scripture always introducing sections of judgment or coming judgment. And that word could be translated as a burden. So Malachi means messenger. Malachi is a messenger delivering a burden. He's being sent with a message of correction and judgment. And it's apparent from the very first word in the Hebrew, it's just one word, oracle. From the Lord through Malachi. It's not starting up hopeful. He's bringing a hard message, and it's evidence. But with that said, it may be surprising what we see in the next verse. A burden, a hard message from Malachi. And then we read, I have loved you, says the Lord. Malachi being sent with a hard message, a burden. And again, the majority of the book is pointing out Israel's disobedience. It's showing their complacency. It's showing the consequences of their unfaithfulness. But before we get there, God starts here first. He says to his people, his unfaithful, his complacent, his doubt-filled people, he says to them, I've loved you. I have loved you. And it's not a past tense. It's it's a present, ongoing, I have, I do, I will love you. This is where God's message to his people starts, and it's something that is foundational, 
I don't think this is one part of a six-part book. I think this is the foundational part, and we're going to refer back to this every week, that God is coming to his people, and he's pointing out their sin, and he's calling them to repentance. And underneath all of it is this declaration to his people, I love you. I've loved you before rebuke, before warning, a reminder of his love. If you're a parent or you've had a parent, you've probably been a part of a conversation that started something like this, right? There's judgment coming. (laughs) There's discipline coming. And you know your child's not going to like it. And so you sit them down and you tell them, I love you. It's not a great example because we're so different from God and our motives are different. And sometimes we're just trying to mitigate the, 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 you know, the outcome. But this is from God. Before he speaks a hard word to his people, he says to them, I love you. And what you should know is it's not a superficial love. It's not a love based on anything they've done. It's an unconditional love, an unending love, one that they can't lose, a love that's secured by covenant. Something we're going to talk about in a few more minutes. God's declaring his deep and unconditional and unending love for his people. It's how the book begins, but in the next phrase we see the problem. God expresses his love, but his people are having a hard time believing it. Look at the verse again. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, I think it's important for me just to step out of this for a second and give you a a little clue about the, the structure of the book because here's what I hope you'll do this week. I hope you'll take time this week to read the book of Malachi in one sitting, which if you are an average reader will take you 10 to 14 minutes. If you're a slow reader, it could take you 20. If you're a speed reader, you're done in seven, okay? It's a short book. And as you read through it, maybe you would read with a pen. And as you read, what you're going to see is that there are six sections. Each section starts with God saying something to his people. And then we have this, but you say. And we see that the the people are doing something contrary to God, and then God responds to that. And so there's these six parts of the book. God speaks, and then, but you say, and we see the first one here. Let me show you the second one. It's just a few verses down in verse 6. God speaking through Malachi says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. As you read, underline how many times it says the Lord of hosts. It's a lot of them. Oh, priest who despise my name. So God speaks. He says, I'm a father. I'm a master. Where's my honor? And then he says, but you say, how have we despised your name? So this is the pattern. That's the organizing framework of the book. God speaks. The people are speaking contrary to God. And then we get correction. So as you read, you can look at those sections. But now let's go back to verse 2. God affirms his love. I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? And we should hear as we read that all kinds of angst and doubt and disappointment because these are a people who are jaded. 
and who are struggling to see God's goodness or to believe his love. Let me remind you of their situation again. These are the people of God. These are the descendants of Abraham. Their ancestors were delivered out of Egypt. They heard stories of God's faithfulness in the wilderness. They know that God conquered the enemies, gave them a promised land. They've heard about Moses and God's promises to David. They know about the good years in Jerusalem. But this generation, the generation that Malachi is writing to, these folks were probably born just before or during the Babylonian exile. Remember, God is a way of disciplining his people, allowed them to be conquered. They were taken out of their land. The temple was destroyed, and they went and lived as exiles in Babylon. And this generation grew up not in the land, but outside the land of slaves. Now, there were 70 years in Babylon, and then slowly some people start to return. Some haven't returned, but some have. And if you know the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, you know that they've come back. They've rebuilt a temple, not the same as the first, but there's a temple standing. There are signs of restoration. Now, I think people come out of exile thinking, we're back. But then they get back and they're not really back. Because there's still people scattered and the temple's not what it used to be. And they're, in fact, they're still under Persian rule. All that to say, what we have pe- are people who are looking at their circumstances and coming to the conclusion that God must not love them. Because if God loved them, what's up with exile? And why would they continue to live this way? Have you ever found yourself following that line of reasoning? If God really loved me, surely my situation would be different. If God really loved me, I wouldn't be struggling the way I am. If God really loved me, he wouldn't let my life keep going like this. It's a common way of thinking, isn't it? And here's what's going on when we think that way. Instead of looking to God's love and allowing his love to guide our view of our situation, we look at our situation and allow it to guide the way we think about the love of God. Does that make sense? You see how that's backwards? To look at our situation and say, I will define God's love based on my situation. Instead of saying, I know God loves me. And so I can see the situation based on that reality. It's Romans 8 stuff, right? That he'll work all things together for good to those who are his, who are called according to his purpose. As God's people, as those who are loved by him, we should be able to trust that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, it's the situation that's been allowed by the hand of a loving and good God. We should be striving to trust his providence. But we all know what it's like for doubt to creep in, don't we? That's what happened here. God says, I have loved you, but they say, look at us. How have you loved us? It starts with doubt. And again, I think this paragraph, this section is not one of six, but a foundational part of the book. And I think what we're going to see as we move our way through the book is that these people who doubted God's love, that doubt 
turns to complacency, turns to unfaithfulness, turns to disobedience. We'll see the first example next week that they become sloppy and careless in their worship. Remember the law of God. He, he's told them to bring pure and unblemished sacrifices. This is the way they worship him. I have loved you. Worship me this way. And yet what we're going to see as we keep reading through chapter 1 is they start bringing blind animals and lame animals, animals that were no good for them. That one's useless. Just taking the sacrifice to God, right? That's a good way to get rid of that blind, lame lamb. Just one example of how they became apathetic and complacent. And yet I think at the root of that, the root of careless worship is a heart that's not right with God, that's not overwhelmed by his love, a heart that is actually doubtful of his love. These are people who don't believe that God cares for them. They don't believe God loves them. They don't think he's keeping his promises. So doubt turns to complacency, turns to disobedience. And if this hasn't already happened in your life, I want to warn you that it could. We must guard our trust in the nature and the character of God. Believe, friends, he loves you. And he has made promises to you that he is keeping. And I know you look at the situation of your life and it is not what you want. Friend, it's not for a lack of love of God. Perhaps you're in a season of discipline because he loves you. That's the story of these folks. What we have is hard words from God coming, warning coming, but before that, we have this reminder of the heart of God, his love. And we get proof of his love as we keep reading. Now, before we go on, I want you to just not, not look at your Bible. It's not overall a good practice, but just for the moment, don't look at your Bible and think, how would you expect God to answer this question? I have loved you. How have you loved us? What does God say next? I did this exercise myself this week, and I was thinking about how often in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament and the Psalms, we have this reminder God is faithful, and here's how he's faithful. He delivered his people from Egypt, right? He took them. To, remember those historic psalms that walk us through the whole story, and he keeps saying over and over, and his steadfast love endures forever. And he took them here, and he defeated this enemy. His steadfast love endures forever. And he gave them the land, and he raised up kings. His steadfast love endures forever. And I would expect, if I didn't know what was next, that that would happen here. But that's not what happens. God's response is not what I would have expected. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Not the answer I would have seen coming. And I just want to say this on the front end that 
these verses and verses like them are, are verses that are difficult to understand and sometimes push against our emotions and our sensibilities. For some, this particular theme creates uneasiness. But I want to guard you from living there and missing the point of the text. Here's the point of the text. God's love for his people is unbelievable. That's the point. Here's what we see. God points them, and in responding to their doubt of his love, he points them to a story of two brothers. Now, these are the grandsons of Abraham, the sons of Isaac. And you've already seen where the verse goes. Two sons, Jacob and Esau. God says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And what God's saying is, you can know I love you because I set my love on Jacob. That's where we're headed, but first let's look at the question God asks. The question is important for us to understand the rest of it. Here's the question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? If we jump to the Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated, then we've missed part of the text. The question is important. Who are these guys and what's their relationship? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? And if you know the story, it's the answer is yes. Not only are they brothers, they are twin brothers. And not only are they are twins, but Esau is just a little bit older than Jacob, which is significant. You should read their story. I don't care if you do it before you read Malachi or after, but sometime this week, read the story of Jacob and Esau. It starts in Genesis 25, and it goes in and out up through at least chapter 28 of Genesis. But let me read you an important part for where we are today. Genesis 25, starting in verse 19. These are the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah the daughter of Bethel, of Aramean, and of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Re- Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children, now if you ever go to the doctor and you're pregnant, and they say the children, how's that feel, right, Kyle? The, the children in the womb, <laughs> The children, there's two of them, they struggled together with her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So this is the story of their birth, and there's a lot there. What we see is that even before they were born, there was a struggle between them. Before they were born... Before either one of them had done anything to deserve anything, God had a plan. God told Rebekah, their mother, these boys will be the father of two nations. 
They will forever be opposed to one another. And then he says something really unexpected in this culture. He says the younger will rule over the older, or the older will serve the younger. And that just didn't happen. What we see is that before they were ever born, God was making unlikely and unconditional choices. It's unlikely because it was inconsistent with the way things were usually done. The older was the privileged one. The older got the greater inheritance and the greater blessing. If we were writing the story, this is the one that we think would be blessed. We see God making a choice, and it was unconditional. If you read the next few chapters, what you'll find, I think sometimes we think, oh, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, what a man of God. Read the story of Jacob. In fact, his name, you know what his name means? Cheater. He lies, he deceives, he cheats. Esau's not a great guy, but if you were to put him side by side, we may have liked Esau better. What we see is that before they were born, God had a plan, and we're told that he set his love on Jacob. So we see highlighted in verse 2. Now remember the context. Let's zoom back out. The question is, how do we know that you love us? How have you loved us? And God doesn't start going through all the things he's done, but he points back to a sovereign, unconditional choice that he has made. Here's how you know I have loved you. I chose you. Now remember, Jacob's the father of Israel, so when God speaks to Jacob, he's speaking to Israel. And what we hear God saying is, Israel, I didn't have to love you. I could have set my love on Esau. But I love Jacob. I loved you with a sovereign, unconditional, covenantal love. So when Israel asks, how have you loved us? God responds, I chose you. I chose you and I didn't choose your brother. Before you were born, I set my love on you. I set you apart before you were born as my beloved. And it wasn't based on anything you did. I have loved you. It's a story of God's sovereign, electing love. And I think for many of you, this is a truth that you hold dear, that you know that God's love is decisive. But isn't it hard to read that next part? What does it mean that God loves one group of people and hates another? Does that rub you? Does that seem inconsistent with the nature of God? What we have to recognize is these are covenantal terms. When he says he loves Jacob, he's saying, I have chosen to show mercy. I have chosen to extend blessing. I have chosen to withhold judgment that otherwise is deserved. This is the story of God's covenant love. He calls the people to himself. He extends undeserved mercy, undeserved blessing. You know, we, we have this a couple times where the people of God ask, why are we your people? My favorite is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession 
Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he's chosen you, Israel, as his treasured possession. Why? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed from the house of slavery and from the house of Pharaoh. See his covenant of love? He loves you and he's doing this. Why does he love them? Because he loves them. They're his. And he's made promises to them that he's going to keep. But then we've got this other part. What does it mean to be hated? Well, don't think of an emotional, flying off the handle, hatred. It's covenantal. So in this context, to hate means to not show mercy. And instead bring deserved judgment. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Which is to say, weren't they the same? In fact, wasn't Esau to be the blessed one? Yet God set his love on Jacob. He showed undeserved mercy to Jacob. And the descendants of Esau, well, they get the judgment of God that's deserved by all. These are hard topics, aren't they? Let me make a couple of notes of clarification. First, and here's what I would say. This passage could lead us to all kinds of theological rabbit trails. Tons of them. And have fun at lunch, okay? But I don't want you to leave here so concerned about the theological rabbit trails that you missed the point of this text. Here's the point of the text. God has incredible love for his people. The people are doubting God's love, and this is a response. Before you were born, I set my love on you. I had no reason. You, you did nothing to deserve my love. But you know why I love you? Because I love you. And if you want to be sure of my love, then remember this. Esau was Jacob's brother. We'll read more about God's dealing with Esau in a minute, but let me address a common objection and. I don't want to go too far down this road, but I'll, I, I don't want to skip over it either. What does this say about fairness? This is a common question for us. Is it fair that God would choose some people to bless and not others? Is God's electing love fair? And the answer is this. What's fair is that we would all receive God's wrath. We all deserve it. We all deserve his judgment. Jacob did not deserve God's love. If you look at his life, you'll see how undeserving he was. And if you follow the story of the nation of Israel, Israel did not deserve his love. And friend, you didn't deserve it either. A lot of times we come in this mindset that we're owed the love of God. No, you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But God is merciful and kind, and the, that is the point of the text, that God shows love to people who didn't earn it and who didn't deserve it. And when God sets his love on you, his love never changes. It's forever faithful. It's a covenant love. 
Jacob deserved God's wrath. Israel deserved God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath. What's fair is God's wrath, but God in his kindness chose to save a people. He sent his son to die so that people like you and me can be saved. God in his love, if you know Christ, because he's opened his eyes so that you can see him, he's set his love on you. And the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, how do we respond to the love? And that's really what this, point, this text is driving at. If we understand how much God has loved us, what his saving, electing love has done, then it should compel us to faithfulness. It could compel us to obedience, to live for the one who has shown us such mercy. So do you feel the tension here? When God says, I loved you, I didn't have to love you. I could have loved Esau, but I loved you. And now you question my love? He's helping the people understand his incredible love for them. And I think this first paragraph lays the foundation for the rest of Malachi. God's coming to his people. Why? Why is he rebuking them? Because he loves them. They're his people. They're being unfaithful, yet God has set his love on them. And his judgment is sure towards those who are not his. It goes on. Esau have I loved, Jacob have I hated. And then he he wants them to see how much he loves them. And the way he shows them how much he loves them is by showing them how he deals with those whom he has not called as his people. We keep going there in verse 3. Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Again, the point is God's love for his people. And he wants us to see how God deals with them in comparison to how God deals with those who aren't his people. Now, the text refers here in the next verse to Edom. Edom is the nation that came out of Israel. If you've read through the Old Testament with us this year, you've probably come across this, this, this country before, this nation before. Um, Obadiah, dedicated to Edom. Edom are the descendants of Esau, and throughout the Old Testament, we're told how God deals with those who aren't his people. So to show his love for his people, he says, look how I deal with those who aren't mine. Now, here's where this gets fuzzy. The people of God lost Jerusalem. They were exiled from their land, and so for a while, they're thinking, okay, what's the difference? You're treating us the same way you treat everybody else. He says, I've laid waste his hill country. And they say, well, you laid waste to Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, if Edom says, we are shattered and we will rebuild the ruins, that's the same thing the people of God said. Edom also said, we're shattered, we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called a wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He knows Israel will have questions, but just like them, Edom goes through periods of destruction, but there's a distinct difference. God says they will never fully rebel. They will never fully live in peace. 
they will forever be those with whom I'm angry. Does that sound hard to you? That God is angry towards folks? Friend, that was you. We say this all the time, but I wonder if we feel the weight of it. We were born as the enemies of God. We were born deserving to be treated like Esau. And yet, God in his love saves sinners. And when he sets his love on you, it's forever. How have you loved us? Jacob I loved. The descendants of Esau will experience nothing but destruction, not only in this life, but forever. But the hope of the people of God is that he has loved us. So church, I want to ask you, how do we respond to the love of God? Over the next two weeks, we're going to consider the disobedience of the people of God. And I'm going to keep pointing us back to this. Because we, I fear, will see ourselves in the complacency of Israel. And we will see ourselves in the sinfulness of Israel. And the question we will have to ask ourselves is, how could we live this way if God has loved us this much? He tells them about the destruction of Edom, the judgment on the descendants of Esau. And then he says in verse 5, it's prophetic. Your own eyes shall see this. What shall they see? They'll see the destruction of Edom. They'll see God's judgment on Esau. They'll see that he is sovereign over all things. Your eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now, again, it may feel hard for us to think there's people praising God because of his judgment. But what we see here is that God is sovereign. And he's not just a little God who's over Israel. He's the God of all things who's over all the world. He's not only their God, he's the ruler of the universe. And he says, you're going to see it. And you're going to say, great is God's judgment over all the world. Implication, how much must he love us? There will be a day when they will recognize God's judgment on their enemies. And they will see clearly their salvation. On that day, they will recognize the Lord reigns. He reigns over all. Great is the Lord. what Paul talks about in Philippians. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see the doubt and complacency of God's people, their apathy and their disobedience. But through it all, here's what is sweet about the book of Malachi, and here's where I hope it feels Christmassy. Okay? This book is a proof of God's faithfulness that he keeps his word to his people. He always does what he said he would do. He said he would send his son, and he did. 
He has told us he's coming again, and he will. God's people are unfaithful, but he is forever faithful. The book of Malachi begins with this incredible reminder of God's love. And then a few times throughout the book, we get glimpses of God's plan for salvation. And then spoiler alert, the book ends with an incredible announcement of the one that God will send to accomplish salvation for the people whom he loves. May you live this week in recognition of the love of God. And may your awareness of his love for you impact your obedience. May it propel you to tell others to proclaim the love of God so that others can know and hear and be saved. We'll continue next week. Let's pray.